Hello everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. In this third episode of our series, Exploring the Civil War in the Shoals and the Tennessee Valley, we will visit the Alabama Secession Convention to hear highlights of what was said during the process by which Alabama's political leaders decided to secede from the United States in 1861. We will also explore some public statements in the Florence Gazette and testimony gathered by the Southern Claims Commission to discover perspectives here in the Tennessee Valley surrounding this controversial process. I will provide some demographic information as well to help illustrate the regional sectionalism within the state and the distinctness of North Alabama in particular, which may explain much of the discord during the debates surrounding secession, which we will encounter shortly. I will go ahead and clarify here for our future reference. The rhetorical style of this era is extremely verbose. I unfortunately simply do not have the time to quote these sources in full. This is especially true when we come in a moment to the Secession Convention. The remarks are dense and lengthy, honestly just simply bloated. To paraphrase is a real challenge, as I find the words are most impactful when left as people said them, or at least were recorded to have said them. I will select the most clear and relevant highlights while preserving with integrity the spirit and meaning of the statements offered to the best of my ability, so that we can still get a good understanding of the discourse. I may at times leave out words between certain key points, but only to eliminate some of the less impactful phrases while still preserving the integrity of the text as much as possible. You will also very often hear me say quote and end quote to designate times when I am quoting a source directly as opposed to giving summary or analysis in my own voice. I hope this doesn't become tedious. I simply want to represent first-person accounts of these events as faithfully as possible. In the beginning of this series, I expressed a commitment to letting the 19th century voices speak for themselves, not to paraphrase, and in keeping with this commitment, I will offer sometimes rather lengthy quotations. I think it's worthwhile for you to know what was said, not merely my subjective summary of what was said. Last time, we discussed the long road, as I called it, to the secession crisis. You may remember we left off with the election of 1860. If we imagine the road to secession was the fuse, then this election was the spark which ignited that fuse of succession, which, in turn, would detonate the explosion of civil war. So before we go to Alabama's secession convention, let's explore the election of 1860 a bit more closely. As the year 1860 dawned, the Republican Party was poised to do very well, having all but won the previous election in 1856 and the intervening events we discussed, such as the Dred Scott decision and John Brown's failed raid on Harper's Ferry having supercharged the growing ranks of its voter base, uh, the looming prospect of a Republican president was alarming and unacceptable to political leaders in the South. Already by February of 1860, the Alabama legislature passed a resolution anticipating the contingency of a Republican victory in the race for president. Such an event, the res resolution declared, would compel the governor to issue a proclamation calling for a convention to discuss what ought to be done. 
For the most ardent Southern politicians, this meant nothing short of disunion with the states of the North. The resolution passed on the 24th of February, 1860. The preamble goes as follows. Quote, Whereas anti-slavery agitation persistently continued in the non-slaveholding states of this union for more than a third of a century, evincing a deadly hostility to the rights and institutions of the Southern people, and a settled purpose to effect their overthrow even by the subversion of the Constitution and at a hazard of violence and bloodshed, and whereas a sectional party calling itself Republican has acquired the ascendancy in nearly every Northern state, and hopes by success in the approaching presidential election to seize the government itself, be it resolved that upon the happening of that contingency, namely the election of a president advocating the principles and action of the party in the northern states calling itself the Republican Party, it shall be the duty of the governor, and he is hereby required forthwith to issued his proclamation, calling upon the qualified voters of this state to assemble, to elect delegates to a convention of the state, to consider, determine, and do whatever in the opinion of said convention the rights, interests, and honor of the state of Alabama requires to be done for their protection. End quote. Nowhere does the resolution specifically say secession. It does, however, allege a certain subversion of the Constitution, which demanded proper redress. In the Southern mindset, the Constitution was a kind of contract which was, in theory anyway, voided by this so-called subversion on the part of the Northern states with their persistent anti-slavery agitation, the pinnacle of which would be an executive in the Oval Office whose party expressly condemned slavery and sought to limit its expansion wherever possible. In such an event, the southern states, including Alabama, would be obliged to, quote, determine and do whatever the rights, interests, and honor of the state of Alabama required to be done for their protection, end quote. Similar measures were passed in the states of the Deep South, such as South Carolina, which will be the first to secede five weeks after Election Day. The resolution also calls for copies of the text to be sent to the governors of the Quote, sister states of the South, end quote. It is important to recognize that this resolution is self-aware of the fact that, one, the country was regionally divided north from south over the issue of slavery, and two, any action the state will take in the future, should the Republicans gain the presidency, would be a direct response to that persistent so-called anti-slavery agitation in the North, in short, to safeguard the institution of slavery. Going into the election that year, Alabama and the states of the Deep South had thus drafted for themselves a kind of escape clause from the Constitution to be triggered by a Republican victory in the race for president. Southern politicians aimed to dissolve the Union, citing repeated anti-slavery agitation in the North, specifically from re Republicans, whom they almost always referred to chidingly as the Black Republicans. From what I've read, the designation of the Republicans as black was a play on words for race, yes, that is, the race of a person who was set to benefit from their policies, not the race of the politicians themselves, but it also carried the connotation which black had with sinister or ominous, such as, for example, Black Tuesday, the day the stock market crashed in 1929. The most 
cordial accepted terminology for African Americans that one encounters in the public discourse from the 19th century was Negro, black being a far less common term. One sees the epithet black Republican repeated endlessly in the Southern press and public discourse of the time. It was both critical and derisive, and it left no uncertainty about how a true loyal white Southerner was expected to view that party. The Republicans were, indeed, virtually exclusively a Northern party. The Democratic Party, on the other hand, which had been the only remaining truly national party, had itself already begun to split along regional lines regarding the question of slavery, with the controversy surrounding the admission of Kansas as a state, which we discussed last time. By the time voters went to the polls in 1860, the regional division of the party would be complete. The Democrats held their convention in 1860 in Charleston, South Carolina, arguably the fieriest hotbed of Southern nationalist and growing secessionist sentiment. Their forerunner was Stephen Douglas of Illinois, author of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and apostle of the doctrine of popular sovereignty. But Douglas was a problematic choice. He had political baggage, which made him unpopular with the Southern faction of his party. In their famous debates back in 1858, Abraham Lincoln had pressed Douglas on the principle of popular sovereignty. The question was this, which was the precedent that held ultimate sway, popular sovereignty or the Fifth Amendment? In other words, did the Dred Scott decision, which upheld the right to travel with one slaves throughout the Union, not negate Douglas's doctrine of popular sovereignty? If voters adopt a constitution banning slavery in their state, what did that make of the Dred Scott decision? Douglas dug in his heels and said, in essence, if the voters allow slavery, it should be allowed, and if they ban it, it should be banned, the Supreme Court's decision notwithstanding. This became known as his so-called Freeport Doctrine. Instantly, Southern members of his party began to write to him in complaint of this stance. This was now the land of the Dred Scott decision, after all. The Supreme Court affirmed that slaves were covered by the Fifth Amendment, and to restrict that right in any way, even by a popular vote, would be unconstitutional. Southerners would not accept any doctrine which left open the possibility for the exclusion of slavery from any territory or future state. The gulf between Southern and Northern Democrats was widening. At the convention, Douglas, the presumptive nominee, failed to receive the necessary two-thirds majority to be confirmed as the party's candidate. The Charleston convention adjourned without choosing anyone, and the Democrats decided to reconvene in Baltimore. At the do-over convention, the Southern faction, led by Senator Jefferson Davis of Mississippi, demanded that the party's platform must include nothing short of a constitutional amendment explicitly guaranteeing the right to slave ownership, rather than the more ambiguous right to property guaranteed in the Fifth Amendment. And they drafted a so-called slave code for the territories, evidently banking on, and fundamentally endorsing, further expansion of slavery into the West, in defiance of the Republicans. When the party failed to vote to pass the Territorial Slave Code as part of its platform, Southern delegates walked out of the convention in a staged act of defiance, and again the convention disbanded without a nominee. 
Having failed to reach a unified platform or choose a single nominee, the northern and southern factions of the Democratic Party went their separate ways, for good this time, and held their own respective conventions and nominated their own respective candidates. Stephen Douglas was the northern Democrat, and John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky was the southern Democrat. This kind of split within a party, dividing in half before a unified opponent, as David Blight points out, all but guarantees the party will lose the election. And they did. In an effort to avert the catastrophic disintegration of the Union that was now looming from the real prospect of Republican victory, which Southern Nationalists had already said they would never accept, a new party called the Constitutional Union Party was born. Most of their support came from the border states and the Upper South, who saw the writing on the wall, so to speak, that if the Union were to split North and South, they would be the ones on the front lines of the fallout. Their platform was remarkably simple. They stood for, quote, defense of the Union and enforcement of the law, end quote. Perhaps they hoped that this was something everybody could manage to agree about. They nominated John Bell of Tennessee, and he would garner a great deal of support from that state. The Republicans held their convention in Chicago, and originally the presumptive candidate was William Seward of New York. However, Seward had apparently accumulated some enemies within the Republican establishment throughout his long career. He was also seen as a staunch, hardline abolitionist. Abraham Lincoln, on the other hand, had had a short career that was therefore free from a long list of foes and faux pas. He was also seen as a more moderate than Stuart, and thus would be less likely to alienate the voters of the border states. Lincoln himself, after all, born in Kentucky, a border state, was not a Yankee like Seward. Nevertheless, Lincoln's record on slavery was abundantly clear. In 1859, he said, quote, Republicans believe that slavery is wrong, and they insist and will continue to insist upon a national policy that recognizes it and deals with it as a wrong. There can be no letting down on this. End quote. Southerners, for their part, were not unreasonable in characterizing the Republicans as avowedly anti-slavery. Though there were now four candidates for president, Lincoln would not even appear on the ballot in ten states of the Deep South, as no electors there would publicly support him. For a voter in Lauderdale County, the race in 1860 was between Douglas, Breckinridge, and Bell. Lauderdale County, along with Lawrence, Madison, and Marshall County, voted for Douglas, the Northern Democrat, as did the most populous county in the state, Mobile. Southern Democrat Breckinridge carried the day to a varying degree virtually everywhere else in the state. A majority of voters cast their ballot for John Bell of Tennessee in a scattering of five counties in South Alabama, one of which was Macon County, just east of the capital, where more than two-thirds of the total population were enslaved in 1860. This shows that at least some slaveholders felt some apprehension about immediate secession, and like many in North Alabama, as we'll see, felt their rights, as they called them, would be better safeguarded for the time being within the existing union. Being a slaveholder was not necessarily an indicator of one's public opinion about secession. There were those in the 1870s, who testified to the Southern Claims Commission, which I will hereafter refer to as the SCC, that they had not only owned slaves, 
but they opposed secession and or voted for the so-called union candidate and urged their friends and neighbors not to support the rebellion. One of those slave-owning unionists of Lauderdale County was Thomas Allington, a prominent citizen and probate judge after the war. In 1860, he held 13 people in bondage. Nine of those 13 were under the age of 18, including a six-month-old baby. When we think of people held in bondage as slaves, let us not forget a great many of them were children. Allington says in his SCC claim that he voted for Douglas, the Northern Democrat, opposed secession publicly, and spoke only for the Union in what he refers to as debating societies. Forty percent of Lauderdale voters in 1860 cast their ballot for Douglas, 36 percent for Breckenridge, and 23 percent for Bell. In the various precincts, the margin of victory varied considerably, and each candidate carried at least two precincts. In Florence, Bell finished third behind Breckenridge by only three votes, six-tenths of a percent. Bell was chosen by 53% of voters in Waterloo, yet he received a total of only eight votes in Taylor Springs, or 4.7%. In Lexington, Northern Democrat Douglas won by the greatest margin of any candidate anywhere in the county, with just under 70% of the vote. But in Blackburn, the vote was almost evenly split into thirds. Bell with 29 votes, or 35.4%, the lowest margin of victory in the county, Douglas with 27, and Breckenridge with 26 votes, 32.9 and 31.7% respectively. The data therefore show the various communities across the county differed wildly from one another in their political inclinations, and in some places were very closely split among themselves. Nationally, Lincoln carried all of the northern states and virtually all of their electoral votes. Breckinridge, Southern Democrat, took the southern states, except Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Missouri across the Upper South. The former three states were won by Bell of the newly born Constitutional Union Party. The ill-fated Douglas would only take Missouri, though he would finish second with the electoral votes overall. Thus, Abraham Lincoln was elected by electoral majority with only about 40% of the total popular vote, and the preset cogs in the mechanism of secession immediately began to turn. States of the Deep South, such as Alabama, as I've mentioned, had adopted measures to trigger secession procedures in the event of a Republican ascending to the presidency. South Carolina was the first to declare its independence on the 20th of December, 1860. South Carolina also sent out emissaries, called commissioners, to travel to the slaveholding states of the South, such as Alabama, and lobby the case for secession. South Carolina claimed in her secession ordinance that, among other reasons, since the non-slaveholding states of the North had failed to enforce the fugitive slave law and return escaped African Americans to bondage in the South, thus violating the constitutional rights of Southerners, that they were reclaiming their sovereignty and discharging themselves from the Union of 1789, the Constitution of the United States. It must be noted that, when doing so, they directly referred to the original grievances of the 13 colonies against the crown, which gave them the right to abolish the Union with Great Britain. They justified their rebellion by directly citing the precedent of the American Revolution of 1776. It was therefore not a contravention of their revolutionary forefathers' intent, but its logical successor. 
they invoked a kind of American patriotic sentiment to justify the dissolution of the Union because, they claimed, they had been harassed and harangued to the point of being left with no other choice. In Lauderdale County, prevailing voices varied in intensity, mirroring in many ways the variable results in the presidential election. Virtually everyone, in the public spotlight at least, expressed an affirmation that the state had a right to withdraw itself from the Union to remedy the aforementioned grievances committed by the northern states, but they differed on the method and timing of that withdrawal. The newspapers printed attention-grabbing, fiery, hell-or-high-water letters and editorials, rallying and championing the most hard-line secessionist rhetoric. There was talk of patriotism and loyalty, of duty and honor, and then there were inflammatory appeals to an unabashedly racist, white supremacist ideology. Not two weeks after the election, on the 21st of November, 1860, the following appeared on page two of the Florence Gazette, under the headline, quote, something for white men to think of. Quote, do the white men of Alabama know that the northern states have elected a man who believes and boldly declares that Negroes are and should be made the equals of white men? End quote. The article then quotes Lincoln in a speech at Chicago dated the 10th of July, 1858, in which Lincoln speaks of the Declaration of Independence's famous line that all men are created equal and asks, quote, In making exclusions to it, where will it stop? If one man says it does not mean a Negro, why not another man? End quote. After providing further examples of public statements by Republicans as evidence of their support of racial equality, the writer of the article concludes, and a warning here, the language is quite insensitive, and my listeners may find it disturbing. Please note that while I repeat them here for the benefit of your knowledge, I do not in any way condone such remarks. Quote, in this country, we know that the Negro is not the equal of the white man. What white man in this land would ever agree to live in any country where the Negro was his equal and had an equal voice with him in government? And yet, you are asked to submit to the rule of a man who boldly tells you that the Negro is your equal and that he ought to be allowed to vote at the ballot box side by side with you. Do the white men of this country know that in Massachusetts, Ohio, and other states of the North, thousands upon thousands of woolly-headed free Negroes voted for Lincoln, and by their votes, which count as much as yours, free man of Alabama, helped to make as your president a man who says that the Negro is and ought to be your equal? Will white men submit to such rulers so elected? End quote. Here it is made abundantly clear that the election of Lincoln and what is repeatedly described in the public discourse regarding secession as, quote, submission to northern rule, end quote, signifies a threat to the white supremacist social order. The decision to secede was in defense not only of the so-called right to uninhibited slave ownership, but of the entire social order, a racially stratified hierarchy where people of color were never to be the social and political equals of whites. Another advertisement regularly appearing in the Gazette at this time has a rather shockingly blunt marketing strategy that leaves little doubt about the prevailing sentiments abuzz under the secession movement. It reads as follows, quote, The crisis of the Union. Shall white men rule America? 
the newspaper for the Times, the weekly daybook for 1861. The daybook holds that this is a government of white men and that inferiority of social and political position for the Negro race and superiority for the white race is the natural order of American society. All who want to refute the arguments of the anti-slaveryites and understand the Negro question should read it. Democrats, constitutional men, must see to it that sound papers are circulated among the people or black Republican principles will never be put down. End quote. The most moderate voices, while not directly in opposition to the principle of the right to secession, nevertheless urged restraint, consideration, and the employment of other legal channels, at least for the time being, for a redress of grievances before taking the drastic step of complete and utter disunion. An anonymous writer to the Florence Gazette on December 12, 1860, had this to say, quote, the people should take time to weigh the responsibility they take upon themselves before adopting measures to sever the ties that bind us to that union in which our fathers achieved the independence of this United States. Are you prepared to precipitate your state into rebellion and civil war against the best government ever framed by the wisdom of man? End quote. Some people clearly saw the impending threat of civil war and appealed to American patriotism rather than state or southern loyalty in the hopes that cooler heads would prevail. It was perhaps the most common stance in North Alabama that secession should only be pursued in concert with the other southern states, that Alabama should secede if and only if the states of the South went all at once together. It was widely regarded and reported in the newspapers, even before the secession convention, that secession was inevitable, a foregone conclusion. Business owners took advantage of the secessionist fervor and anti-Republican hysteria to drum up business. On December 19th, a certain Mr. Wilmot pr printed his advertisement in the Gazette. Quote, Ladies and gentlemen, as true sentinels, it becomes our duty to warn you of the danger of unconditional or any other kind of submission to the rule of black Republican presidents. But for the present, we have to confine ourselves to informing you that by calling on Mr. Wilmot, you can procure a most splendid article for a Christmas present. This is a fact which you may be evinced of by calling at Mr. Wilmot's fancy store. Go and see. End quote. There were also undoubtedly at least some folks in the Shoals who opposed secession entirely as a matter of principle. At least they claimed to have done so after the war. One of those was a man named Henry Hart, who said, speaking ten years later after the fact for his SCC claim, quote, My sympathies were for the U.S. government to stand just as she was. I didn't want no confederacy, God forbid. I was naturally opposed to slavery. The extension of slavery was the cause of secession. I, oppo I was opposed to secession." End quote. Mr. Hart also held people in bondage as slaves. He says, however, they were, quote, a curse to me, and I was glad when they were free, end quote. There does not seem to be a great magnanimity or humane regard for the plight of the people he enslaved in his sentiments, yet he claims to have opposed both slavery and secession. When the war came, many claimants to the SCC from Lauderdale County would not only profess opposition to secession and the Confederacy, but would make enormous sacrifices for the Union cause that would leave little doubt of their loyalties. 
but we'll talk about that more in future episodes. For those people of color living in Lauderdale County in 1860, being deprived of social agency or a voice in politics did not necessarily deprive them of an opinion regarding secession. One such man, Woodson Armistead, one of only 44 free black persons in Lauderdale County according to the 1860 census, though born a slave, had purchased his own freedom and was a working professional, a shoemaker. In the view of Mr. Armistead, quote, a few secessionists were the cause of the war, end quote, and he says that he was anxious for the United States to succeed. Another man, Samuel Brooks, expressed succinctly what, I'm sure, was a common viewpoint for those held in bondage. Quote, I had no vote, but I was always in favor of the Union cause. End quote. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll visit the Secession Convention and see how regional divides within the state translated into controversy. Please stay with us. The Alabama Secession Convention was to be held in Montgomery starting on the 7th of January, 1861. There were 98 delegates from 52 counties. Alabama has 15 more counties in 2020 than existed in 1860. Counties were entitled to as many delegates to the convention as they had representatives in the state house. Some counties only sent one representative. Some sent as many as four. Lauderdale County, like the majority of other counties, sent two. Sidney Posey, and Henry Cox Jones. In the 1870s, claimants to the SCC referred to these men as the Union candidates. They offered the fact of their having voted for them to represent the county to the convention as evidence of their own so-called Union sentiments, as it was invariably termed. Both Posey and Jones had voted for Stephen Douglas in the presidential election, as did a plurality of Lauderdale County voters, as we saw. Sidney Posey was a judge, a slaveholder, who owned a plantation northeast of Florence, part of which is now the land making up Dibert Park. He is buried in the Coffee Cemetery, which is the brick-walled graveyard directly adjacent to the Walmart on Cloverdale Road. His obelisk stands out quite clearly visible. There were two distinct factions represented at the convention. The minority groups to which the aforementioned Union candidates Posey and Jones belonged were called cooperationists. As the name implies, they were opposed to secession unless Alabama acted in union or cooperation with the other slaveholding states, contingent upon yet another convention of all the states of the Deep South. They favored a submission of grievances to be redressed within the existing legal framework of the United States government, which, if left unresolved, might then justify secession. They also insisted that any ordinance of secession be submitted for ratification by popular vote of the citizens of Alabama, and not by decree of the convention alone. They were careful to point out, lest anyone impugn their character, that they would not submit to any tyrannical depredations by a Republican government and were just as patriotic as anyone. They were merely representing the best interests and expressed wishes of their constituents. The majority faction we may refer to as immediate secessionists, and as their name suggests, they believed Alabama had the right to secede from the United States at any moment 
in essence, reclaiming its sovereignty. They offered evidence of a long-standing anti-slavery animus in the North, which had for decades eroded the rights of Southerners to be secure in their slave property. They also hearkened to the example of the American Revolution that people have the right to dissolve a government which fails to protect their interests or infringes upon their natural rights. They were led by a fiery and, may I say, long-winded orator named William Lowndes Yancey of Montgomery. Mr. Yancey is regarded by historians as one of the most vocal and ardent agitators of the policy of secession. He will be dead by the end of July 1863, and never live to see the downfall of a confederacy he in part engineered. In speaking of two distinct factions at the convention, it is not merely the hindsight of historians responsible for the observation of this division. At the time, the delegates were self-aware that sectionalism separated them into two camps. In the first debate of the convention, after submitting a so-called resolution of resistance with the purpose of ascertaining, quote, the sense of this body upon the question of submission or resistance to Lincoln's administration, end quote, Mr. Whatley of Calhoun County observed, quote, it is known that there are different opinions entertained by members of this convention. Many have been elected as straight-out secessionists, others as cooperationists. End quote. It also did not escape anyone's observation that the two parties tended to divide along regional lines. The cooperationists, such as Posey and Jones, tended to be from North Alabama, while the immediate secessionists were from the South. The same Mr. Watley alleged, quote, Different public prints represent us in different ways, and particularly in the northern portion of our own state are our positions misrepresented. End quote. There was a degree of open hostility between the representatives of those two factions. Mr. Yancey declared that once secession had taken effect, those citizens who opposed the measure must be regarded as public enemies, guilty of treason, and he invoked the language of the revolution by calling such people Tories, meaning those who had remained loyal to the crown. This comparison prompted outrage among members of the minority. Mr. Jemison of Tuscaloosa, who, though not from North Alabama, was perhaps the most vocal leader of the cooperationists, said, quote, For whom and by what authority does the gentleman speak? He speaks in the plural. In all frankness, said he, we speak thus, we tell our opponents, etc. Are we to understand him as speaking for himself alone, or does he speak as the organ of the majority party in this convention, of whom he is the acknowledged leader? I cannot believe that he has spoken the sentiments of the majority, or any member of it but himself. I cannot think such sentiments are entertained by any other member of this convention. I had not expected to hear such sentiments from any quarter. They are unmerited. They are uncalled for and unprovoked by anything that has been uttered by my colleague or myself, or by any other member of the minority. They are unjust. They are unbecoming any gentleman on this floor." End quote. At this moment, apparently, Mr. Yancey rose to interrupt Mr. Jemison, and a great commotion erupted in the chamber. After being restored to order, Mr. Jemison declared that his only wish was to see courteous, calm, and friendly discussion amongst the members of the convention. But, he said, quote, 
when the great leader of the majority shall call the minority party Tories, shall denounce us as traitors, and pronounce against us a traitor's doom, were I to pass it in silence, the world would properly consider me worthy of the denunciation and doom. End quote. Mr. Yancey explained that his remarks, quote, were not applicable to or intended for the minority of this convention. They were intended for those in certain portions of the state where it was said the ordinance of secession, if passed, would be resisted. End quote. Mr. Jemison, however, was not satisfied by this explanation and sarcastically retorted, quote, I am glad, Mr. President, to hear the gentleman disclaim any imputation of disloyalty to the minority in this convention, but he has bettered it by transferring it to the great popular masses in certain sections of the state where there is strong opposition to the ordinance of secession and where it is said it will be resisted. Will the gentleman go into those sections of the state and hang all those who are opposed to secession? Will he hang them by families, by neighborhoods, by towns, by counties, by congressional districts? Who, sir, will give the bloody order? Who will be your executioner? Is this the spirit of Southern chivalry? Are these the sentiments of the boasted champions of Southern rights? End quote. It was evident to members of the assembly that regional divisions existed within the state, with greatly varying degrees of support for the act of secession, which, you may remember, was already a foregone conclusion. Yet, if passed to the voters of the state for ratification, as the members of the minority wished, it is not at all certain that the ordinance of secession would have passed. This was observed by Mr. Davis of Madison County, after the heated exchange between Yancey and Jemison. He doubted whether the convention accurately represented the true wishes of the Alabama voters. Quote, Does the convention represent the popular will of the state? If it does, the voters will stand by it, no matter what its decision may be. Now, sir, I need scarcely to say that the act of this convention will not be conclusive in this matter. And why? Because, as everyone knows, the popular vote of this state may be one way, the convention another. End quote. He concluded, the only possible way to know if the acts of the convention accorded with the wishes of the people was to submit it for a popular vote for ratification. Quote, by submitting our action for their ratification or rejection, I pledge those I represent to stand by the expressed will of the people. I repeat that I know this to be the position of my constituents, and such, so far as my knowledge extends, is the position of the people in North Alabama. End quote. Mr. Davis thus makes it clear that the people most likely to be misrepresented should the secession ordinance be passed without a popular vote are the people from North Alabama. Mr. Yancey then took issue with this assertion. Simply and directly he stated, quote, I said nothing about the people in North Alabama, end quote. However, Mr. Davis did not entertain this denial. Quote, so, sir, you did not but it is very well understood by every member on this floor to whom your remarks were applicable. If it should turn out that the popular vote is against the act of succession, should it pass, I tell you, sir, that I believe it will and ought to be resisted. Coming at the head of any force which he can muster, aided and assisted by the executive of this state, we will meet him at the foot of our mountains, and there, with his own selected weapons, hand to hand and face to face, settle the question of the sovereignty of the people. End quote. 
he re-established in even clearer terms that the people most likely to resist the ordinance of secession were those in North Alabama. Furthermore, he claimed this was a fact known to all members of the assembly. Apparently, not only was there dissension between North and South in the country, but it was no secret. There was dissension between North and South in the state. After it was clear a secession ordinance would be approved by the majority of the convention, a, min a minority report was drafted, reiterating the cooperationist platform in opposition to the immediate secessionists. They called for a larger convention between all the slaveholding states to meet in Nashville in February, quote, for the purpose of taking into consideration the wrongs of which we have cause to complain, for the appropriate remedy therefore, and the time and manner of its application." End quote. They listed certain conditions as a, quote, basis of a settlement of the existing difficulties between the northern and southern states, end quote, among which were, quote, a faithful execution of the fugitive slave law and a repeal of all state laws calculated to impair its efficacy, a guarantee that slavery shall not be abolished in the District of Columbia nor in any other place over which Congress has exclusive jurisdiction, a guarantee that the interstate slave trade shall not be interfered with, a protection to slavery in the territories while they are territories, and a guarantee that when they ask for admission as states, they shall be admitted into the Union with or without slavery as their constitutions may prescribe. End quote. The classic popular sovereignty position. Also, quote, the right of transit through free states with slave property, and finally, the foregoing clauses should be irrepealable by amendments to the Constitution. End quote. The cooperationists further stipulated that no ordinance of secession should be ratified without a direct vote from the people of the state. When the vote was called to adopt their resolution, the ayes were 45 and the noes were 54. This is essentially the same ratio as every other vote called by the convention and indicates the relative strength of both parties. Other votes were 53 to 46, 45 to 54, 44 to 55, 39 to 49, 61 to 39, 62 to 37. The vote counts showed the actions of the convention were a far cry from unanimous. The minority advocated passing the ordinance to the voters for approval, but when the vote to approve the measure was held, the majority rejected the proposal. The convention itself would decide the question, where the majority already openly favored immediately, immediate secession. Alabama would secede and declare herself, in essence, an independent republic. It was already a done deal, a fait accompli. Mr. Jones, delegate from Lauderdale County, put it this way, quote, the whole history of this convention proves that the decision is already made, that each member has determined the course he will pursue and is prepared to meet the responsibility of his acts both now and hereafter. The people of Lauderdale are as jealous of their rights and ready to resent an infraction of those rights as any people represented on the floor. Tis true, they differ with you about the time and mode of redress. They think that hasty secession is not the proper remedy. They think it unwise, impolitic, and wanting in proper courtesy to our brethren of the border states. Whether your mode or ours be wisest, he would not argue. That must be left for the future to decide." End quote. 
As the vote on the ordinance was finally called, Mr. Clark of Lawrence County on the south bank of the Tennessee River offered a final appeal to forestall the motion. After explaining, rather presciently, that secession would do nothing to solve the anti-slavery sentiment in the North, but indeed would only galvanize it against the South, he offered a very sober economic defense which embodies one of the reasons why North Alabama was generally opposed to separate secession. Quote, a large part of the produce of North Alabama finds a market in Tennessee or passes through that state on its way to it. North Alabama has no idea of permitting her citizens and cotton to run the gauntlet of passports, custom houses, and other machinery of foreign government as they go to market. Already, many of her best and truest citizens are speaking of secession from Alabama and annexation to Tennessee, thus illustrating at once the utter absurdity of the doctrine of secession, as well as foreshadowing the storm that is impending over our own state. Shall we ever live to behold the day when Alabama, having assumed the untried responsibilities of separate secession, shall find herself torn, convulsed, and rent in twain by the dissensions of her own people? End quote. Some political leaders in North Alabama had indeed been contemplating the possibility of seceding from Alabama and annexing themselves with East Tennessee, where Union sentiment was especially high, and forming a new state called Nickajack, a corrupted loanword from the Cherokee language. The threats never materialized, but Winston County, least populous and with the fewest slaves of any other county in the state, would infamously declare themselves the free state of Winston and would vehemently resist participation in the Confederate war effort. Mr. Clark seems to have had a crystal ball when he speaks of the coming storm in which the state would find herself, quote, torn, convulsed, and rent in twain by the dissensions of her own people, end quote. It is one sentence which captures very poignantly the character of the coming civil war in the region of the Tennessee Valley. One delegate, Mr. Dargan of Mobile County, made a less emotional case for just what was at stake from the threat of abolition. Quote, if pecuniary loss alone were involved in the abolition of slavery, I should hesitate long before I would give it the vote I now intend to give. If the destruction of slavery entailed on us poverty alone, I could bear it, for I have seen poverty and felt its sting. But poverty, Mr. President, would be one of the least of the evils that would befall us from the abolition of African slavery. There are now, in the slaveholding states, over four millions of slaves. Dissolve the relation of master and slave, and what, I ask, would become of that race? To remove them from amongst us is impossible. History gives us no account of the exodus of such a number of persons. We neither have a place to which to remove them, nor the means of such removal. They therefore must remain with us. And if the relation of master and slave be dissolved, and our slaves turned loose amongst us without restraint, they would either be destroyed by our own hands, the hands to which they look, and with confidence for protection, or we ourselves would become demoralized and degraded. The former result would take place, and we ourselves would become the executioners of our own slaves. To this extent would the policy of the northern enemies drive us. And thus, we would not only be reduced to poverty, but what is still worse, we should be driven to crime, the commission of sin. End quote. In other words, if the slaves were suddenly freed, 
and the master is no longer in charge, there would be such chaos that they would be driven to commit genocide rather than be demoralized and degraded by accepting social and political equality for the people they once held in captivity. When the ordinance passed, the delegates opposed to secession dutifully fell in line and yielded to the will of the majority, though some refused to sign the document. Mr. Clark expressed the mindset of this acquiescence. Quote, but when the ordinance shall become the law of the state, resistance to this ordinance could only result in strife and dissension among our people. If anyone believes that I would be guilty of inciting hostile divisions between different sections of the state and thus enkindle the flames of civil war throughout the borders of Alabama, he has very much mistaken his man. End quote. On the 30th of January, a speech given to the convention by Mr. Clemens from Madison County was printed on the front page of the Gazette. He addressed the committee and posterity, meaning you and me, with a kind of harrowing foresight and sober rebuke that is the closest anyone publicly would come to an outright condemnation of secession. He said, quote, each member of this convention this day writes a name in history which shall endure long after we ourselves have passed from the stage of action. Under such circumstances, I feel that a word of explanation as to my course will not be out of place. I will vote for this ordinance, but frankness and fairness requires me to say that I would not vote for it if its passage depended upon that vote. As matters now stand, my vote will not affect the decision of the question here in one way or another. The act you are about to commit to my apprehension is treason. I believe your ordinance to be wrong. If I could defeat it, I would. But I know that I cannot. It will pass, and when passed, it becomes the act of the state of Alabama. As such, I will maintain and defend it against every enemy. I see plainly enough that clouds and storms are gathering above us. Although, as a member of this convention, I opposed your ordinance, side by side with you, I brave the consequences. End quote. The editors included a statement adjacent to Mr. Clemens' speech, which goes as follows. Quote, it is clear to the most reckless reader of our paper that we have given our heartiest and most unflinching opposition to the policy of immediate secession. We opposed it from the beginning, and we labored as hard as, hard as anyone, day and night, night and day, to convince the people of its rashness and recklessness to say nothing of imprudence of this policy. We fought this question before the people, and we carried a large majority of them with us. We fought before the convention and had to ingloriously surrender. The convention has decided to withdraw Alabama from the Union, and we cheerfully bow to its decision. End quote. Other articles are full of stories of people rallying together across Alabama, united, as it were, behind the state. In the press, anyway, there seems to have been a real enthusiasm brewing for the nascent Confederacy. Regardless of one's opinions about secession, it was now certainly contrary to the official popular sentiment to express anything other than a willingness to accompany the state into rebellion. For the moment, anyway, it was not at all feasible to express a Union opinion, and conceding that secession was the order of the day was the only safe and practicable course. In that same edition of the Florence Gazette, on page 3, a brief anecdote reads as follows. Quote, 
On Sunday last, a man remarked on the street in our town that in case of a fight between the North and South, he would join the North against the South. The consequence was that he was knocked down before he got shut of it." End quote. Though an isolated example, this does show that at least some people in the Shoals were willing, at the height of secessionist fervor, to publicly denounce the Southern Confederacy. And it also shows the social pressure and bodily harm that a person risked if they did. Tennessee, in turn, would vote not to have a secession convention and remain for the time being in the Union. On the 23rd of January, after the ordinance of secession had passed, the Gazette remarked whimsically that a group of merchants in town from Wayne County, Tennessee, could say that they had been outside the bounds of the United States for once. The nature of North Alabama's proximity with Tennessee is not merely geographical, but also cultural. As Mr. Clark pointed out, the people of North Alabama held closer economic ties with the people of Tennessee than did the folks of South Alabama. What's more, they held closer economic ties with Tennessee than they did with South Alabama itself. They shared with them a common history and cultural identity. The earliest white settlers in Lauderdale County and North Alabama in the 18-teens and 20s merely trickled over the Tennessee border, Tennessee having already gained statehood a generation earlier in 1796. The southernmost foothills of the Appalachians along the south bank of the Tennessee create a physical barrier that was formidable in the 19th century. In 1860, it was possible to travel by train from Florence to the state capital at Montgomery only by a ridiculously circuitous route, first by heading to Chattanooga via Huntsville, then switching trains at Chattanooga to travel to Atlanta, and then by switching trains again to continue on to Montgomery. Traveling directly to Memphis or Chattanooga by train, on the other hand, was like a walk in the park by comparison via the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, which ran right through Tuscumbia. The only other alternative was an arduous journey by horse, wagon, or on foot on what were little more than trails over rough and rugged country. This geographic isolation from the rest of the state meant that, naturally, the people of North Alabama were connected more closely to Tennessee than south of the mountains. Furthermore, the people of the mountains held the lowest percentages of slaves anywhere in the state. Plantations simply were not possible without wide expanses of flat, arable land. People less invested and entrenched in the economic realities of plantation agriculture and slave labor were less likely to support a rebellion to safeguard those practices. North Alabama, with its mountainous landscape, had never been such a stronghold for the planter class as elsewhere in South Alabama. Compared to other counties, Lauderdale County was quite average. In 1860, Lauderdale was ranked 27 out of 52 in terms of total population, 26th in percentage of the population enslaved, and 27th in total number of persons enslaved. Franklin County, which at the time included what would become Colbert County, was ranked 23rd in both total population and percentage of population enslaved, but only 45th in terms of total enslaved population. Out of Alabama's 52 counties, all except two of the top 10 when ranked by total population were also top 10 in either percentage of population enslaved or total number of persons enslaved, and these were all located south of the mountains. 
in Marengo County, more than 78% of the population was enslaved. Almost 8 out of 10 residents of that county was held in bondage by one of the other two. In three other adjacent counties, it was at least 75%. Think about that. It's astounding. More than three quarters of the population was enslaved. In Montgomery County, the state capital, two-thirds of the population, 66%, was enslaved. When ranked by total population, all but two of the bottom 10 counties were either the bottom 10 in terms of percent enslaved or in terms of the total number of persons enslaved, and most of these, except for Baldwin and Washington counties, were in the mountains along the southern cusp of the Tennessee Valley. Winston County, last in all categories I listed, had just over 3% of its population enslaved, the lowest in the state. In understanding the apprehension, many people felt in supporting a state secession movement, and eventually a confederacy dedicated to preserving slavery, it is important to realize the diversity of, of demographic and sociocultural conditions across the state, which led to a regional division of sentiment and in understanding why the southern elite were prepared to venture into the uncharted waters of rebellion, opposing equal rights for those whom they enslaved, understand that they themselves were a minority outnumbered by as much as nearly four to one. As we will see next time, when war does come to the state, it will be the north, the valley of the Tennessee, that endures the most immediate and punishing consequences of secession, as standing armies, the largest ever assembled on the continent, trade blows and ransack the tranquil pastures and hollows of this idyllic landscape. Join us next time as we discuss the first year of the war, 1861, the first military events to affect the shoals, and the reactions of everyday people to these events. And thank you so much for tuning in.